welcome to the Onyx Podcast. I'm this week's host, Eddie Webb, and with me are Matthew Dawkins. Glad to have money, Penny. Wow. Does that make me Miss Money Penny? <laughs> no, I was addressing Eddie. Oh. I'm Miss Money Penny. You're, okay. You're, yeah. you're M. No, I'm yeah. you. And actually, you're Dixie Cochran. Oh, hi, I'm Dixie Cochran. Hello. <laughs> but I want to be Q if I'm going to be somebody in the Bond universe. There you go. You can be Q. That's fine. Hmm. Yes. The inventor of gadgets and gizmos, increasingly ludicrous as the movies go on. Yeah. That's a fun until, job. Yeah, until Daniel Craig comes along and gets all serious and boring. Oh, I like Q off. in the Daniel Craig movies, though. Oh, fair enough. Q, yeah, Q is fun. And it, does, does that make Rich M, then? Probably. Yeah, I, I suppose. Although I see him as more of a Blofeld. So he's <laughs> Judy Dench. <laughs> <laughs> I was more thinking Donald Pleasance in You Only Live Twice. You know, he needs a little uh, white cat on his lap and a, and a scar down one eye. We, we could go for Christoph Waltz, Blofeld, but I prefer to go old school. <laughs> it touched me like just the other day my family and I were having a lengthy discussion about the, the various merits of the different Bond actors because we were watching uh, the Casino Royale movie again which by the way is 14 years old and that made me really old for a moment good lord yeah anyway uh, this episode is not entirely about James Bond no but we've never spoken about it before or anything on the podcast and it's been a long time since I've really discussed Bond so also this actually ties in with our uh, subject a little bit so we should talk about it, it for a second so I have yeah, seen yeah. one James Bond movie <laughs> oh really oh. which one uh, Skyfall okay and that's it that's my knowledge of Bond it's 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 kind of funny actually <laughs> my my roommate um, Laura she is a huge James Bond fan Mm-hmm. Like, even the bad ones. She just loves James Bond. She loves James Bond movies. She can't really explain why she loves them. She just does. Um, and it, it, it's really funny because every now and then she'll try to, like, talk about it. Or there was, like, a Bond exhibition that she was, like, going to. And I was like, "Oh wow, cool. Have fun. I'm gonna... I've seen one movie. I've heard most of the songs. Um, they are good, good soundtracks. Uh, that's, that's about, like... The first time I remember being aware of James Bond as an entity was when uh, Shirley Manson from Garbage was doing uh, the the Bond theme. Hmm. Oh, which one was that? Oh, uh, oh that's, the, uh, is that The World Is Not Enough? Yes, that's The World Is so. Not Enough. Yes. Um, I remember Excellent. The, what do I win? Because <laughs> the like, video was really cool, and that was around the time that I was really into Garbage as a band, and so like... That was when I was first kind of like, oh, maybe Bond's kind of cool. They got Shirley Manson from Garbage. And then I just, I didn't. I've, I've seen part of one of the Pierce Brosnan ones, the one with the invisible car. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that might be Die Another Day, which is uh, definitely not one worth watching more yeah, it was, it, than that it, scene. It was one of those things where, like, my mom was watching it on HBO or something, and I, like, wandered through the room, you know? <laughs> right. Like, I haven't actually seen it. I've just seen, like, bits and pieces of it. So I loved James Bond. Uh, I I was as enthusiastic about James Bond as I was about Star Wars all the way up until about the age of 18 or 19, at which point my interest in both of those uh, franchises just completely dropped off a cliff. And that means I have still not seen any of the Daniel Craig movies, despite being reliably informed by everyone that's seen them that they are the best Bond movies you will ever watch, except Quantum of Solace. And, <laughs> and now... I'm I'm getting to the point that I think a lot of people 
people do when they're told about the wire oh you've got to see the wire the wire is fantastic you've got to watch the wire that i'm just thinking no you know what i'm not going to fucking watch any daniel craig james bond movies because right. i'm i'm never going to enjoy it as much as you think i am the <laughs> interest has been built up too much no screw daniel craig that is bond i'll wait for a new roger moore thank you very much <laughs> Um, it was actually because um, uh, my roommate David is actually one of the rarer Bond fans I found who actually prefers the Dynasty era Bonds, the uh, uh, Timothy uh, uh, Dalton and uh, um, Brosnan. Ah. Um, and we had a long talk about it as a family because you know this was an important topic that we need to discuss and make sure that we as a family could <laughs> understand and, and come together on. Um, and because my wife also has watched a fair number of Bond films, and uh, I also actually read a lot of the, the original novels, so I'm actually a literary Bond fan as well. Um, and so we all kind of like Daniel Craig, but it was interesting because, like, if you look at Roger Moore, is kind of the iconic Bond to a lot of people, um, or Sean Connery. Um, Sean Connery, they, yeah. I mean, Sean, but Sean Connery started it off, right? But also, he's Scottish, and that's just weird. Um, but, like, when, when Roger Moore came on, there was kind of a formula by them. And he was more or less following, and he did a good job in it. Don't get me wrong, um, but like the, the humor being part of Bond was kind of the formula at that time. When yeah. you start getting into um, uh, 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 Dalton, he starts playing with the humor and starts getting an edge to it that you don't really. It's something you have to come look back and watch again. But like, it's like he's got almost like through gritted teeth mm-hmm. making the jokes, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, and he takes uh, quite a lot of glee from setting people on fire and feeding yeah. them to sharks and things like that. I I, I know it's, uh, I guess, a bit hipsterish now. A lot of people consider George Lazenby the sort of misunderstood Bond. They say, oh, he was the best. <laughs> but I think uh, Timothy Dalton, and also Timothy Dalton was in Flash Gordon, so let's not take that away from him, Right, uh, is, is one of the best unsung Bonds. Definitely. And he has that wonderful dimple in his chin that I I can yeah. I could be hypnotized by as if it was a Q-based gadget. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, 007, we're going to be implanting the spy camera in your chin. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't wouldn't work on any of the previous 007s, but you've got the perfect dimple. <laughs> right. It's, um, so, it's so funny that like be. Okay, so I, I've, I've talked about this before a little bit on the podcast. Like, there's a lot of things that I just never got into because they were, you know, quote-unquote boy things when right. I was younger. Mm. And I think the James Bond would fall squarely in that. I did, however, watch the James Bond Jr. cartoon series. Oh. Yes. Um, as a child. Yes. <laughs> um, but so it, it, it's funny because you'll, you'll talk about, you know, like Timothy Dalton. And I'm like, what do I know him from? And I look it up and I'm like, oh, he was in Jane Eyre. <laughs> like... Yeah. Oh, right. he was in hot fuzz like this is all the stuff that i know him from and it's very mm-hmm. funny um you know i mean it, obviously in the lion of winter you know but like i know him from all those sorts of movies <laughs> and i just didn't get into I, I i don't know i'm not even sure why i watched james bond jr because like as a child i very rarely watched things that had you know boy protagonist hmm. like blowing things up but i don't know well, if it was any better than young indiana jones Oh, Indiana um, Jones. That was... that was. I remember that being fairly dreadful. Uh, if any of you listeners are were involved in the creation of Young Indiana Jones, I apologise uh, in case I just hurt your feelings. But it was a dreadful series. You should have done better. Think about <laughs> what you did. 
the 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 lingering effect for me from watching James Bond Jr. as a child and not having watched any James Bond movies until Skyfall is that whenever someone says Bond James Bond, my brain goes Junior, right afterwards. <laughs> And you are the only person in the world, Dixie. <laughs> That's amazing. Like, he said it every episode. It was like, Bond, James Bond, Junior. Like, every episode. And, and so, it's a pause, which is very important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he, like, every time. And so, like, whenever I, I hear someone say that either as a joke or as a reference or in an actual James Bond film, like, in my head, this little, you know, like, tiny voice in the back of my head is like, Junior. <laughs> Similarly, um, uh, uh, we're gonna get to the topic. I swear. Um, Why? But this is way more fun. <laughs> I um, uh, I I am a unabashed apologist for the cartoon Sherlock Holmes in the twenty second century, um, which is as amazing and bizarre as you think it might be. Sherlock Holmes gets is resurrected. Watson a robot? Watson's a robot. Um, Lestrade is the great great granddaughter of the original Lestrade, but they're in the U.S. for some reason and. Uh, Moriarty is cloned, and so Holmes is resurrected from cryosleep because he was kept in uh, B-Wax for hundreds of years, because that's a totally scientific that, thing you can do. Yeah, that is how you cryosleep people. Right. That's the reason it's never actually happened in reality. No one has tried. <laughs> Cowards! Um, <laughs> but um, one of the things is that, like all 90s era cartoons, it has to have a good catchphrase, you know, like the Bond James Bond Jr., um, and so theirs was Holmes saying eyes and brains, eyes and brains, Watson, eyes and brains. And it is so in my head now that when people talk about iconic Holmes catchphrases, I'm like eyes and brains. Oh, no, wait, you're talking about elementary, right? No, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the one you clearly meant. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it, it's, it's like it's a terrible catchphrase and it's so stuck in my head and I don't know why. I, it, it's, it's weird the things that Im imprint themselves on you, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, which actually does segue into what we do want to talk about today. Um, uh, last week, we did our deep dive into V5 Chicago. And in there, we talked a bit about Metaplot um, and specifically the progression of content from one book to another. Um, and then uh, in we did our Vampire the Masquerade deep dive. Uh, we also talked a bit about Metaplot in that too, because that was really a lot of discussion about what Metaplot is. Um, and so we thought it might be good to kind of reconnect on that in particular and, and widen out just from Vampire the Masquerade um, to remind people what we're talking about when we say metaplot is specifically the plot line that happens in the backgrounds between products. Um, so, uh, for example, if you have things like this, the Star Wars universe, um, the continuity between all nine of the movies not all of the characters are through all nine movies, but there is a definite progression of events in the backgrounds that are happening. And so that is what we would consider to be the meta plot. The plot that's happening, stitching together all of the smaller plots together. Um, and that's something that was very in vogue in tabletop role-playing games in the 90s. Um, it's kind of come back in fits and starts in bits and places in tabletop RPGs. But there's a lot there to kind of talk about in terms of whether you're playing a licensed game, whether you're playing a game that just has existing backgrounds. Um, there are games like Shadowrun where every year in real time is a year in the world. Um, there are games like Legends of the Five Rings that have kind of zoomed in and out of Metaplot in various in iterations. So we thought we'd talk about um, how much you can use or would like to use a games, what the benefits to and from, um, what it's like to take stuff from a licensed property and bring it into your game and how faithful you can or should need to be to that. Um, 
really, it's just a, a stealth way to talk a lot about games and also properties that we love, as you have already heard. Um, but there is also some value in talking about how much your players might be into that and the things that can come with that. Uh, mm. And to kind of start, um, I know we've already talked about this, but to start with Dixie a little bit, um, you've already mentioned that um, your vampire game, it was unclear how much Metaplot was involved with that. Yeah, I still have no idea. Um, <laughs> having having not read through all those bits and bobs of the books back in the day and only read a few of like the clan novels, which I don't really remember because we're talking about 1999, 2000 here. Right. Um, like, I, I don't know how much our storyteller was pulling from those. For all I know, you know, everything that we did in our Raleigh game was just a direct port of like Chicago by night. I have no mm -hmm. idea. I, I, I honestly don't. Um, I know that he did do a lot of his own campaign planning, so I am doubtful that it was all meta plot, just because I know that for like our, our long-running D&D game that I played with that same group, it was a whole big story that, that he had written. Mm -hmm. um, and it was it was very specific, and it was very cool, and it was not like anything I had seen in media. So if he pulled that from anywhere, I it it's completely unknown to me, because um, he, he did a lot of prep work. So chances are there wasn't a lot in there. Um, but some of the overarching, um, like, I, I would almost call it the, like, meta-meta plot. <laughs> the, like, overarching, like, <laughs> Camarilla-Sabot struggles right. and Anarch movements and stuff. I know that made its way in there, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't the specific people, I don't think. Like, I don't remember mentions of, you know, any of the big face characters that I am now more familiar with. But it sounds like, um, and maybe not these specific events, but it sounds like you were having things like, Maybe uh, uh, the, the the gang role leaving the Camarilla and um, uh, uh, the you know the how the Sabbat have kind of became more factionalized and whatnot. There was stuff happening in the background that kind of gave you context for the game, but weren't necessarily direct ports. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember in our um, we had a Dark Ages game that we played for a while, um, in which we were off to assassinate the Prince of Edinburgh. Um, mm -hmm because I don't know why. I forgot who, had, who was having us do that. But it was someone <laughs> that had like a little bit of dirt on all of our characters. So we came together and played like, I want to say it was like a, you know, four session game where we all got together. We were this, you know, ragtag group of Dark Ages vampires that did not know each other, but we had to go on this assassination plot. Mm. Um, and I remember... <laughs> The, the only reason I will ever like remember that game as well as I do is because of how it ended, which is that me and one of the other guys, who were the two people that had the ability to turn into like birds and bats and things, mm. pulled our storyteller aside while everybody else was just like, they'd been arguing over how to do it for like two sessions and we were very tired of it. <laughs> and so we pulled our storyteller aside and we just flew over to the guy's castle and killed him. <laughs> and then went back to the group. We were like, all right, done. See you later. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and that's how an assassination should be done yeah pretty right. much because uh there was so much talk about like you know how do we get in the building how do we do this and i, I could tell the storyteller was getting frustrated because he was like i thought you were just gonna go do stuff you know mm. and instead you've been trying to plan this for like four hours now and me and my my, my buddy mike uh who was playing i do believe a salubri i was playing a uh Leannon. Mm -hmm. um and we, yeah we just went and turned into creatures and flew over there and killed the guy it was great death by bat 
I think I could turn into a bird. I think that he had bat power and I had like eagle power because Leannons are like druidy. Yeah, just flapping in the prince's face until he falls off of the top of the tower. He's just going, get off me, get off! <laughs> the, the perfect assassination. That would have been very funny. It would yeah. be like that. It would be like that uh, documentary, The uh, Staircase. Yes. Where where maybe an owl killed her? We don't know. <laughs> it's probably her husband, but I don't know. It could have been an owl. Could have been. You never know. Uh, Strix. That's a really good documentary, by the way. People should watch it. If you like things like the uh, Jinx and stuff, you should watch The Staircase. Um, so kind of related, um, uh, Matthew, before we go off on Empire, um, uh, you had mentioned before that you have a, let's say, complex relationship with products like um, uh, uh, the Giovanni Chronicles and uh, the Venture Chronicles, um, where you, you appreciate them, but also you felt like there would be too much metaplot in those. Do you want to dig into that more, maybe? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's uh, there's a good way of presenting Metaplot and a bad way, and I know that makes it sound very black and white because that's how I just presented it. But I think it's, <laughs> uh, but I it's not. A, no, I think I think to a degree it's true because Metaplot, especially when it becomes something of a crutch for a storyteller or a GM, uh, can bog down play because the storyteller is just so enthusiastic about telling you about everything that's going on in the canon and how all of your characters are observers to what's going on the the worst offender is arguably the transylvania chronicles mm -hmm. uh, because although the giovanni chronicles certainly has issues uh, the 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 roles you play in giovanni are still pretty central to what's going on. Whereas in Transylvania Chronicles, while the first one is excellent and it sees you setting up a fiefdom, a castle, you get to influence local politics, because it's all on a small scale, eventually it leads to you attending the Convention of Thorns. And so you get to see in the foundation of the Camarilla. And during that entire chapter-long story, you get to do nothing. Mm -hmm. You just get to watch the Camarilla, Camarilla get formed. You get to watch the Anarchs, you know, throw genitals in Hardstadt's face and things like that. <laughs> and um, it, it just kind of passes you by. And uh, then Transylvania Chronicles 3 kind of redeems it again, where you get some involvement in uh, what happens to the last Cappadocian all the way through to Transylvania Chronicles 4, where there's an antediluvian with a nuclear weapon, and uh, it, it's, it starts getting far too godly for anyone to have any meaningful effect on. Right. So it's tra certainly translated for me uh, when I, I... I rarely get a chance to play Vampire. I usually run it. But... I am known for being quite familiar with the vampire metaplot. Uh, I mean, hence, hence Are Beckett's Jihadzari. Yeah, yeah, I would say it's probably, it will be what's chipped into my tombstone. Knew the vampire <laughs> metaplot somewhat well. Um, could, could talk about it for an hour unblinking, staring into a camera with no prompting. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, this is what got him killed. Um, <laughs> we could bury you next to Neil so you can have like the vampire metaplot Potter's Field. <laughs> uh, but there was a new storyteller wanted to run Vampire the Masquerade for the group. And so, th so this is one of my gaming groups at home in real life. And the uh, in the end, 
he backed down after the first session. Not because I was being some overbearing dickhead. I wasn't saying, well, I think you're fine. The salubri at this time <laughs> only numbered about seven. Uh, but because he was too intimidated by the fact that I did know the meta plot. He, mm -hmm. uh, no matter how much I tried to reassure him, and I did, uh, he just felt like he was destined to fail, disappoint, and, and make up stuff that I wasn't going to approve of in some way. And that was never going to be the case. I, I run plenty of what-if vampire games myself, such as uh, probably the longest chronicle I ever ran was a Dark Ages one, where in the end, the British Isles got made into a sanctuary for the Salubri. A deal was brokered with Prince Mithras where he would essentially kick out all of the Tremere and give sanctuary to the Salubri provided they uh, agreed to be his personal sort of Praetorian guard for the next 500 years. And that worked out really well in the context of the plot because the players were the chief negotiators on that stage. They were the people that brokered that big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet I've encountered not just that storyteller I mentioned but lots of players who are either intimidated about running for me or just intimidated about uh, accessing vampire in general or the Forgotten Realms or any other setting with a big depth of uh, meta plot because they think they're going to get it wrong that there's yeah. going to be expectations and that they'll seem too amateurish. They would rather play something without any of that baggage uh, because otherwise it seems like too big a time investment. I've definitely had that problem. Like when I went to, um, I went to a couple of LARPs in the past year just to try it out because I really mm -hmm. hadn't tried out LARP in forever. And I went to a couple of, of vampire LARPs and like, you know, I was, I was playing a character that had been embraced for like 20, 30 years, something like that, coming from a new city, that, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, it was very confusing if you weren't like super familiar with, with Metaplot. I mean, this is after I had read Beckett's, but as I've said, I don't retain edited information all that well. Right. So like, I know what was going on and, you know, nobody really explained anything to me because they were like, you understand you're you know this clan i'm like I, I i don't though i don't know what you're talking about um and i felt you know kind of stupid and that wasn't great and i've heard of people having the same issue coming into like there's that there's there's a similar barrier for a lot of people like especially if you're like me and you have any kind of anxiety mm -hmm. um you want to be really good at the thing you're doing right yeah um and so if you feel like you're not good at it by just because you haven't internalized a textbook's worth of information mm -hmm. that's that's a problem sometimes for some people mm -hmm. i know that with um with l5r fifth edition they removed a lot of like meta plot um but rokugan still has a very specific culture right and you're supposed to kind of know that culture like there's a lot of you know there's politeness culture and there's the various tenets of bushido and and and, and what have you and if you're a brand new player and you come in and your, you know, GM hasn't taken the time to explain to you like some of this stuff or hasn't at least given you like a a, a, a one sheet, you know, of like, here's how you're supposed to act, then then the the GM or storyteller or what have you should never punish the player. Like, I feel like it's important to be able to step out of character for a second and explain something to a player. Right. So they can act accordingly. Um, you, you should never expect anyone at the table to have all of the answers in their head all the time no mm. um, absolutely not but uh, it's funny you mention l5r and if i may tangent briefly eddie 
Oh no, not in this context. I know. Uh, so uh, you're a straight line from point A to point B. Come well, on. So, so people um, obviously think it can be difficult for GMs and players uh, when it comes to matter plot, but for writers and developers and editors, Christ, yeah. is it difficult? Especially if let I, I don't know. Take me for example. Why not? I'm the I'm the easiest person take for me where? to talk about. Uh, I'll tell you, Jakarta. <laughs> no, he went of his own accord. Um, We'll go for, let's say, I'm very well known for Vampire the Masquerade now, and sometimes I want a break from Vampire. Sometimes I want to work on a completely different game. Mm -hmm. But if I want to work on that game, it is in my best interests for that game to be something without Metaplot. Because I need to be able to dip in, enjoy my work, without having to do a month or more of research, of reading source books, uh, previous editions sometimes to get up to speed and then probably return to the safe home that is Vampire because I do enjoy writing Vampire but it's nice to come up for air occasionally. Mm. So when it comes to things like L5R uh, and Shadowrun, uh, for that matter. Yeah. I could even extend it to something like Star Wars or Star Trek. While those games may feel like they could be fun for me to write, I'm also very intimidated by the idea of writing for them because I don't have the necessary setting knowledge to make me feel confident as a writer. Uh, I don't think I could handle it. And so I'm very comfortable flitting in and out of games like Monarchies of Mao, Pugmire, because they are, in relative terms, very new. Yeah. And we aren't trying to build some big bank of meta plots uh, for everyone to access. But also, in terms of old games, Call of Cthulhu, uh, I can write Call of Cthulhu scenarios until the ta until the cows come home, because they are always set at a nebulous nineteen twenties period, and I can make references to other books I've read. I'm writing a Cthulhu book right now for Chaosium, and I'm making references to characters from Horror on the Orient Express and Masks of Nile Afatep and other books that I've read without ever having to feel like this is explicitly canon because mm -hmm. everything roughly happens in 1923 there's no mm -hmm. chronological order to it so it can metaplot can be really uh, devastating i think to a writer uh, a, a massive hurdle to overcome we have found it with hiring people to work on mage the ascension mm -hmm. uh, because of how convoluted it is absolutely so uh, yeah i just wanted to throw that in briefly well, I think that's a good actually thing to think about is because when you're running a game, um, it depends on the group you're with, but there can be the expectation that the person running the game in an established metapod or an established setting does have the same depth of knowledge as someone who's writing for it and it has to be authentic and accurate. Um, and sometimes it's not. But what's interesting to me is that not every game, not every property has the same expectation. Like... You mentioned Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars is an extremely complicated, dense mythology to the point where when uh, Disney acquired it, they explicitly axed a whole bunch of it. Um, yep. like, this stuff just doesn't exist anymore because we can't parse it. Um, we need to start more or less fresh, which is something that I've never really heard of before. Uh, a company explicitly... I mean, I've heard of companies taking bits and pieces and saying, this is canon, this is not canon. Doctor Who did it all the time. But our company to explicitly say huge chunks of it are just gone was was relatively new to me. I mean, New 52 kind of did that. Yeah. Yeah, and but it DC. Was, it was very scary. <laughs> it, was, it was a scary time in comics. 
No, that's a really good They point. were like, okay, we're starting over. Everything's gone. We're like, uh, no, okay. Not to mention also, I suppose that um, uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths was kind of the same thing in a lot of ways. Yeah. Every yeah. now and then, c- comics especially, because I mean, of all the properties that we're talking about as as far as like big media properties, comics go back the, the farthest. Yeah, nearly um, a century, yeah. Yeah, and like every now and then they just have to reset. Like they used to not care about canon as much and like, you know, like golden age etc there were storylines but it wasn't like everything had to be remembered constantly mm-hmm. but once it got into i'd say the 70s and 80s like specifically i'd say that the 80s they started being like okay this is a continuing plot that goes on forever yeah right? and so having the you know capacity to wipe that out occasionally is probably helpful and for me um i come from this kind of a weird perspective because like on the one hand i have I have written for properties that I was not previously a fan for, and I had to do all that research. Um, and you kind of have to develop a bit of a love-hate relationship with it because you're coming with a fresh eye. You're not coming from a fan perspective, so you can think about things and do things that a fan wouldn't necessarily think about or consider doing. But also, you do kind of have to get to love it a bit because it's only making them really meaningfully write on it is because you have to spend a lot of time watching and reading, and you have to kind of come to understand what people value in it. So you have mm-hmm. to kind of become a fan of it. Um, but everyone latches on to different things. But And my main fandoms have been those that have been notoriously bad about continuity. I'm a fan of Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes and Transformers, and none of them care damn about continuity until, like, extremely recently. Um, and so for me, it's always kind of what are the, the, the points that a fan wants to see, right? Um, I ran a uh, tabletop uh, Marvel superheroes game a few years ago. And uh, this was the original TSR edition, but I was like, we're not doing, I'm not expecting everyone in the group to know mid eighties era Marvel comics, no. Um, So I reset it into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I was like, we're gonna do kind of in between the movies that we've seen. Um, And so some people knew those better than others. And so everyone saw they would like try to steer the game or make a reference to a part of the movie they enjoy so they can kind of experience and interact with it. Whereas other players maybe saw like a couple of the Avengers films and that was it. We're more just, I'm vaguely aware of what's going on, but I don't understand what you're talking about here, what this specific reference is about. And so I found there's this kind of balance you have to strike between hitting the things that the majority of the group want to see when you're doing a meta plot heavy game. Um, you know, I, I want to kind of engage with this and touch on this, but also not straight jacking them so much that like Matthew said, you have to know an entire encyclopedia's worth of knowledge. Um, right. To go back to your Rokugan example, it, it sounds like what they did is they moved away from meta plot in terms of here's what this specific clan did, that specific clan in this specific year, and more along the lines of, okay, we're just going to kind of vaguely reset to where here's the setting. How we got to the yeah. setting is less important. And what happens after this point is less important. Yeah, you get more history and stuff if you read some of the supplements and adventures and things like that. Um, but as far as the core book goes, there really isn't a huge amount of setting. Like, I, there might be a timeline, mm-hmm. but it's not, like, something that everyone needs to know, and it's not a bunch of ridiculously specific events or anything. Right. Um, which which I liked, and that's, that's actually something that we're um, drawing on a little bit for Exalted Essence. Because, uh, speaking of metaplot, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot that's happened in, in the world of Exalted. Yeah. Um, if you if you open the Exalted Core, you get a bunch of history and a timeline and what's going on in the world and what what the gods are like and all their stuff, what what creation is like, um, 
and then you open any of the other splat books or supplements and you get more history um I, I do enjoy the realm for, for setting, but because we have all those books already and we're going to keep making those books with all the history and the setting and, and you know some amount of, of meta plot and signature characters and what have you, for Exalted Essence, we're going with a very pared down, like, here are some places you could set your game. Here's the basic cosmology of the world. And that's it. Right. Mm. Um, even fiction, we're, we're toning down to like one page of like, a short intro fiction piece right um as opposed to having two or three pages at, at, at the beginning of, of every chapter um because we wanted the game to be more accessible in the way that like l5r5 is or even things like like pugmire and monarchies where yes there's some history mm-hmm. but it's not like something like it, it's 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 not so specific and so like drill into the game that you have to know it right um, but if people want to know it for Exalted Essence, they can pick up the other books and read just the lore pieces. Mm-hmm. And like we we totally encourage people to do that. Like if you are playing an, an, an Essence game, but you want to set it in the realm, well, there's the realm. It's right there. You know, <laughs> pick right. it up, read it. Right. And that kind of uh, uh, distinguishes between uh, the stuff like you talk about Exalted Essence is what we generally call in the industry a, a day zero product, um, which is that... There's background that leads up to the game, but then the status quo of the game as you read it, from that point forward, it's more or less of the player control. Um, the idea is that you will right. get other products around that to give you more context for it, but events are not going to move forward. They're pretty much going to be dictated by the, the group you're playing in. Um, whereas Metaplot kind of comes in two flavors, which is either future books will come out that will change that status quo over time. Um, and V5 is kind of meta plotty it's 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 just on the cusp of that because dull somber were not considered joining the camera before shadow by night and now there are so an event has changed whether that happens or not is up to player characters but things status quo has changed since that first book um or you're playing in a meta plot where you know future events as player characters so like if you decide to play um a lord of the rings game uh, and you're setting it before the fellowship reforms, then you know, okay, at some point in time in the future of this campaign, these events will happen. So um, it's, it's a lot of, it's less the fact that, you know, games need to have a light background history. That's not the case at all. You could have a, a game with Metaplot that has very little uh, complexity, but there's still things are constantly happening. Um, look at any kind of modern cartoon. There's not a, a depth of complex background usually, but, stuff's moving forward because it's serialized. Um, or you can also have a very detailed, rich background that's not going to progress. Right. See, I, uh, I, I, in defense of that deeply involved meta plot that's constantly active, uh, I've, I'm benefited by the fact that I have uh, a number of players who really thrive on delving into Metaplot whenever they can, whether they're playing Vampire or, again, Call of Cthulhu, something like that. Uh, A game where there's, for instance, characters presented in a book that have a full biography or a city that has a history or a clan that has a history of ups and downs, and it enables them in character to find out more about the world and 
and for me to present them with handouts or present them with tidbits of information without having to necessarily come up with it on the fly. And uh, I'm I'm pretty good at improvising stuff during when I'm GMing a game, but it's also incredibly useful if, let's say, I'm running a game set in Chicago for Chicago by Night or involving a cult from Cults of the Blood Gods. Mm-hmm. I can quickly refer to my Cults of the Blood Gods book and I can use a paragraph of information about them as the lore that you have just found out. So, right. you know, right. that they can look into it and this is what is true according to mm-hmm. the game. It gives some players an immense feeling of satisfaction to access the truth. Uh, and these kinds of players who are prolific note takers who you know like to annotate everything so that they can scour back over them for clues really seem to enjoy Metaplot as well. Uh, I think it can lead to a deeply immersive setting when the players are that kind of player, you know, when they're interested in accessing the the world and uh, making themselves feel like they're a greater part of it. Right. And I feel like, so a lot of times when people talk about whether Metaplot is good or bad, they're really talking about different play styles. Um, Mm -hmm. And those play styles can coexist. A property is not inherently require one or the other. and I'm going to take an example that will shock everyone who listens to this podcast, which is Sherlock Holmes video Sherlock games. Sherlock Holmes? Yes. <laughs> Shockingly. I was, like, I was like, Sherlock or Transformers? Sherlock or Transformers? Or maybe wrestling. Sherlock or Transformers or wrestling? Which one of these is it? Well, wrestling does have a meta plot, but we'll get to that. Okay, okay. Hear me out, though. A Sherlock Holmes Transformer that wrestles. Ooh, there you go. Hmm. <laughs> what, would his, what would his finishing move be, Eddie? The final problem. Ah, yeah, of course it would be. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, There's a a two kind of design philosophies towards mystery games in general, to be fair. Um, Sherlock Holmes games is kind of a good way to express those. And um, uh, in the 80s, uh, there were a lot of text adventures, um, some early kind of rudimentary graphics for video games. Uh, But the idea was that... um, the events of the crime are going to take place in a certain timeline. All the characters are going to do very specific things. And you have to solve the crime in the time it takes. So you can take as long as time as you want to for each action. But each action takes like, I think it's like a minute of game time or like five minutes of game time. And then so the events will move forward. And if you're not in the right place at the right time, then you miss the events. And that's a, it's it's not meta plot as we were describing it. It's plot, but that's, the one side we're talking about here, which is that the events of the world are going to move on with or without you. And you can impact and change those events. But if you're not in the right place at the right time, then the world is going to go on. And that can definitely give a feeling of verisimilitude, like the fact that there's a world beyond just your character, that the whole world isn't stopping and waiting for you to make a decision um, because other people are going to go off and take their their own actions, their own choices. And there's, for a 1985 video game, that's just some really complex stuff happening in the background of that. And there's mm. some games that still kind of explore that. Um, on the flip side, uh, you have uh, most modern Sherlock Holmes games, which are, the case is not progressed until you have all the information. Um, and so it's much more of the, uh, uh, all the information is present, but it does not matter and it does not move and it does not have any meaningful narrative impact until a player interacts with it. Yeah. 
Um, and so in this case, it's the case of the setting is there for you surely to interact with. And the setting does, the status quo does not change one iota unless it becomes relevant to what the player characters are getting involved with. That actually, I've been talking a little bit, um, as, as Eddie knows, in our personal Discord about Disco Elysium, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty much like that as well. Like there's, it's it's maybe the most well-written video game I've ever encountered. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got ridiculous dialogue trees. Apparently it's got over a million words in it. Wow. And it's only like a 20-hour game, <laughs> depending on how you play it um, and, and how fast you read. I'm a very fast reader, so yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, there's so much history in Metaplot. And depending on how you build your character and you know with, with, with whom you interact and what you click on, you might never access large chunks of it. Mm-hmm. I was reading a Reddit thread. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm very thorough when it comes to video games. I click on everything mm-hmm. and I go everywhere. I am, I am that person who will try every dialogue option if I can, yep. you know um because i just want to see what happens Mm -hmm. but i was reading a a reddit thread after i finished it the first time on like large things people missed and there were huge things people missed their 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 first playthrough Mm -hmm. and i i kind of love that kind of thing where you interact with it as much as you want to yeah um on the on the second playthrough that i'm doing i'm playing a very different build of the main character and uh i'm i'm definitely not interacting with with certain things nearly as much and it's kind of on purpose because i want to see where this journey takes me because there are different endings and different ways the game can go um and so i i i did my my first playthrough very very straight very like being a decent cop you know smart guy nice guy whatever and my next playthrough i'm i'm just i'm kind of a wild card right <laughs> but it's 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 cool when, when when games do that we're like it's there and you can choose whether or not you interact but yeah right and that, and that's the thing is like um a lot of generally modern video game design uh the idea is that you don't want to make content that people can't see um right so it you know the idea that character doing stuff in the background and there's no meaningful way to players even realize it's happening until it's just too late um that kind of went out of fashion after only a few years, I would say, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have tabletop role-playing games and video games have an interesting complex relationship. They inspire each other throughout the, throughout the decades. Um, and so you have the 90s come up and the idea of, particularly with, with comic books also on the rise uh, of both long serialized narratives, the idea that role-playing games can do this started appearing. Um, but again, they, they weren't quite sure how to make that happen. And I feel like it's a, it's a sweet spot. It's Generally, we both both sides have landed on. It's all there, but it doesn't become relevant until players click on it, interact with it, uh, talk to it at your table, what have you. And that seems like that a lot of the games I hear out of play and generally fall into that kind of rough sweet spot with Metaplot, which is that it is as important or unimportant as the group feels it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does lead to kind of another interesting point of how much uh, um, how much is needs to be there to make that game feel accurate yeah that's true uh, especially if you're trying to set a game in let's say an authentic historical setting mm-hmm. uh, how yeah how much do you need to include to uh, to ev- evoke a, a feel of I guess historical veracity 
And uh, that's something that I've come up against when running Dark Ages games. Requiem for Rome. Uh, Requiem for Rome was probably the biggest challenge uh, for me as a oh. storyteller. One of, one of the biggest. Uh, because while I am a big fan of... I, I love reading about history, uh, all kinds. I just have... I re always struggle to visualize Rome. Mm -hmm. Or especially Rome, uh, so the Roman Empire outside of Rome. Because while HBO's Rome TV series is fantastic, uh, it does really only cover the city, hence its name. Uh, and as soon as you start leaving that, uh, it, it really does become a bit of a fog of, uh, of war <laughs> situation in my mind. Right. I don't know why. I can quite easily picture other things, and no matter how much I read about them, and maybe because there is less written about, uh, the, I guess, Gallic empires and, and Germanic tribes and so on, I just have less of an eye for that kind of thing. So I never really felt like my players were getting immersed. Mm -hmm. So in terms of historical matter plot, uh, I found I can definitely struggle as a storyteller, um, let alone from the vampire standpoint. Right. I will say that if anybody ever wants to set a game in ancient Greece, they should just go play Assassin's Creed Odyssey and pick out all the characters that you meet <laughs> and then reconstruct that. Oh, wow. Because uh, it's, it's like that, that to me... I mean, yes, it's a video game, but we're talking about just the concept of meta plot. Yeah, so, you know, um, so Assassin's Creed Odyssey did a really good job of not needing to know the Assassin's Creed meta plot. Oh, um, like really at all. There's a couple things that like, like it is a sequel to Origin, but since Origin and Odyssey are set so far before the other games, it's a little different. Mm, okay. um, but they put just enough actual historical figures in there that you're like, oh, cool. Like I just met so and so, mm. you know, out like out outside of this really important building that I've seen a million times in like art history books. Um, but then there's enough like adventure stuff you're doing on the smaller islands and on your own and out at sea that maybe most people don't know about. Mm -hmm. But it gives you a pretty good map of a large chunk of, uh, of, of, of the islands there. And also it just gives you you know, ideas of where you could meet certain historical figures. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I would say the same with Assassin's Creed 2 going all the way back to that. Uh, it gave me a good visual of what Renaissance Venice would look like. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, going back to Horror on the Orient Express, I'm uh, currently taking my party through Europe slowly and uh, <laughs> they are in Venice it's 1920s Venice of course but I can take an awful lot of the the visuals of things like costumes of the Commedia dell'arte and and the buildings the architecture and whatnot uh, from from the Assassin's Creed video games and from our very own Dark Eras books too uh, I think they're very good for setting both a picture as well as a textual uh, setting in all kinds of uh, historical eras, of course. Right. Um, but to kind of go back to your point about um, people get intimidated by this, um, I think one of the things you both have been touching on is that how flexible um, digging into Metaplot can be and digging into setting can be. It doesn't have to be 100% authentic. Um, as long as there's certain touchstones there, as long as it's recognizable, it's like, oh yeah, I recognize that guy from Greek history. Okay, cool, great. Or like, hey, I'm in a a mind machine, I'm going back to my ancient ancestor, and that's all I need to know to understand the Assassin's Creed bit. Cool, that's an Assassin's Creed game. That that works. It has a funky UI, and we move on. Um, but think about something like Star Wars. There have been a ton of Star Wars games, tabletop and video game. Um, but there are certain key points that 
make them recognize Star Wars. Like uh, Knights of the Old Republic is identifiably a Star Wars game. It was hundreds of years before any of the other established media. Um, the three or four, I've lost count now, Star Trek tabletop role-playing games. Um, they, they make sure that they hit on various points. And as different versions come out, there's been more Star Wars media they have to incorporate and think about, but it's still all of them are, are recognized by Star Wars to the point where people have edition wars of which favorite Star Wars edition they prefer, <laughs> you know? I think I think one of the things about the Star Wars and Star Trek games, though, is that those are set in such vast universes compared True. to a game that takes place in, like, one country mm-hmm. that it's really easy to ignore stuff and bring in stuff as you will. Because, like... You're in space, you know, <laughs> and there's hundreds of thousands of planets you can go to. If you look at you know, if you look at the actual Star Trek series, they visit a new planet all the time, right? Um, so like, there's all these places, all this exploration you can do, and there are also enough canon characters, as as you were saying, that you can bring one in here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the books that I uh, copy edited for Fantasy Flight was their Allies and Adversaries book for their main Star Wars mm-hmm. line. And all it is is canon characters with their stats. Oh, nice. So it's it's the stats for Darth Vader and the stats for Yoda and the stats for Chewbacca and what have you. Mm. Um, so if you want to bring some of those characters in, now they have stats. Yay. Uh, but even if you don't want to stat those characters up, if you're playing a Star Trek game and you want to, you know, get hailed by the USS Enterprise, great. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Let's let's do that, you know. Right. And I, and I think also, you know, just think, things having the same rough shape that's recognizable allows you to play a game that, that's identifiably part of, of something like a meta plot, but not necessarily akin to it. So like you could play a different Star Trek crew, but like I know what the captain looks like. I know what their uniforms look like. I know what the positions generally do. I know what the races generally are in, in that series. So if you have mm-hmm. a different crew and a different ship on a different mission, it could still feel like Star Trek. And like you said, it's like, you know, maybe they'll run across the Borg. It's like, oh, okay, I know what the Borg are and where they roughly are on this timeline. Um, so you could feel like you're, still attached to events. Um, I remember I played in a Star Trek game briefly where we got involved in the battle of uh, Wolf uh, 351, which was the kind of the big, huge conflict with the Borg where a lot of ships mm-hmm. on both sides died. And so we, you know, like, we knew we knew the, the canonical outcome of that. And so I was like, oh, this battle's gonna be rough because a lot of people are gonna die. We may be some of them. Um, and so there was that moment of, of we got a bit of extra knowledge and flavor and texture because we were aware of it. But otherwise, knowing that there are these massive square cubes in space that are really, really powerful. That's all you really need to know. But you, you, there's, there's enough uh, familiar parts there and then different configurations. You still go, okay, this is still clearly identifiably recognizably a Star Trek game, even if you're not doing any of that stuff. Well, mm-hmm. I think the the trick, much like you said about your Marvel game, is to set the expectations at the beginning. Uh, yeah. So uh, if your players are made aware that you know, we're going to be pl- playing, playing fast and loose with uh, the Star Trek canon, so Romulans are members of Starfleet in this game, uh, or you know, or, or if you're setting it in scarred lands, you don't have to have all of the Titans' bodies being exactly where they are in the campaign setting. Uh, I ran a scarred lands game for the Red Moon role-playing crew, and just made up that the um, I think it was the the stomach of Golfagua is uh, 
in an ocean to the south and it's just constantly bubbling up and so a fortress was built on top of it to contain all the acid inside of it and things like that that's not in the campaign setting it's just using some of the ideas from the meta plot without actually cleaving to the meta plot mm-hmm. and I think for most players that's a satisfactory way of handling it because you're again setting expectations uh, for some though there will be people that rankle that that kind of armor wouldn't have been worn at this time in history or you know, as I said there, there are only this many salubri around in this particular year right. uh, but as long as I think communication exists at the table you should be able to get away with um, most meta plot breaches Mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely it's a case of kind of also reading the room a little bit, um, which is hard to do, like to use Dixie's LARP example. It, it's it's hard to look at 50, 100 people and get them all on the same page in terms of, of background knowledge. Right. Um, and so sometimes if people have been playing together for a long time, they can build up their own kind of personal meta plot that they can find it hard to parse in. It's not just store created or, or content created meta plot. Yeah, that was part of the issue, too, when I did try to join that group, because it, it wasn't just, like, whatever meta plot they were using, but it was also, like, some people have been playing together for, like, 10 years, you know? And breaking into, like, this is just a, a social thing, like, breaking into an established friend group is always difficult, especially if they have been friends for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, that's, that's, that's what I was trying to do, essentially, was break into an established friend group. And really, the, the more that I do kind of certain LARPs, the more that I find that it just might not be for me. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain ones I've really enjoyed, and then there's a lot of them that I've kind of just been like, eh, that wasn't as fun as I hoped it would be. I still think I would like the ones where you go out in the woods and hit people with swords. Yeah, um, not much plot there. <laughs> yeah, but, you know. That's me. Anyway, so yeah, that's 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 just like breaking into that kind of group is always hard. So if you're if you're new to a group and you have you know expectations or anything, it is best to always communicate those up front. Right. Exactly. So I mean, it it, it comes down to is um, if if people really love like Matt said, sometimes groups really love to dig into those elements. Do that. You know, bring them out there, show them there, and certainly using existing. Metaplot elements as opposed to creating your own can be a time saver or if you're particularly very familiar with them. Um, but whether it's personally created metaplot or, or, or group metaplot or whatever, if you're bringing new people in or if you're starting something new or if someone's just new to the concept, taking a break and saying, hey, let me fill you in on this is always really, really helpful. Um, but also, if you, if you just group just like, nah, we just want to go a different direction. You know, it's like, we don't really care what the History. History is a good example, actually, because history is kind of the ultimate meta plot to a degree. Um, we all know where history is going to go, and just by playing in history to a certain degree, you know, you're you're changing that. Um, I ran a Victorian age uh, vampire game a while back, and it was uh, uh, I had one man who was a player and everyone else was women, and so I was like, okay, so let's talk about this. How much sexism do you want to deal with? Um, and I was like, I could do historically accurate sexism. I can do revised historically accurate sexism, which wasn't as bad as pre- previously believed historical sexism. Or we could just say, fuck it, we don't want to deal with this. And only a few jerks are sexist. Everybody else kind of just deals with it. And they're like, we don't want to deal with it. So I, I made it to where it's basically there's only a few explicitly broadcasted sexist characters, but society wasn't nearly as sexist as originally perceived. Um 
And we had that conversation and it was fine. And they had a wonderful time and they kicked a whole lot of ass and made a whole bunch of people cry. It was great. Um, so, I mean, it, you don't have to stay faithful, but if someone's going to be really interested in those things, um, have a conversation with them. I have certainly appreciated a lot of Sherlockian media that is not perhaps authentic, let's say. Again, Sherlock Holmes, 26th century, not exactly canon accurate. Let's put it that way. Um, but I, I enjoy it for what it is. I know going in what it's going to be. If I get something that's supposed to be an extremely authentic presentation of Sherlock Holmes, and then it has makes some pretty obvious errors, that gets very frustrating. So as long as you know what you're getting into, um, if I know I'm playing a V5 setting where there's been massive canon stuff changed and the orders are cool and now part of Vampire the Masquerade, I can mm -hmm. roll with that. But if I'm presented with, okay, this is going to be right out of the book, Vampire the Masquerade, and then I get thrown something different, that could be really jarring. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Uh, I mean, sometimes such a swerve is enjoyable uh, when it takes you by surprise, but it is always a gamble. And I think it's it is far better to just talk about it beforehand and say, you know, we're we're mixing and matching these elements and removing these. Uh, I played in in games of vampire where people completely uh, remove Clan Malkavian. Uh, oh wow! Because. Um, and I, I can understand uh, they find the idea of a clan that's kind of defined by mental illness uh, deeply just disturbing to them as players they don't find it enjoyable mm -hmm. uh, and yeah I can completely relate to that I've often felt if you know if I ever had my way if if I was uh, involved in vampire at the time that uh, the Ravnos got zapped uh, I probably would have directed the laser at the Malkavians instead because mm -hmm. um, I think it is a it's not really a meta plot issue although I suppose it is because it's the clan founder is cursed with madness which is a very biblical kind of thing uh, but it's not necessarily a very vampiric thing and so yeah uh, I think as long as again you're clear with how you want to change the setting that's fine because it allows players to make an informed choice as to whether they want to play the game or they can then discuss it uh, to negotiate things. Uh, such as in your Victorian example with your, with you know, you might have a few sexist antagonists. It's the same mm. way we have a character like Balthazar, who we mentioned last week, in yep. mm -hmm. Chicago by Night. Not every group is, want to, is going to want to go up against a horrible racist confederate mm -hmm. uh in fact and i mean and like not every storyteller is going to want to play no. a horrible racist confederate right. no yeah. uh, and uh, i i again completely understand that but some people want a an antagonist that they can hate without feeling guilty about hating mm -hmm. and yep. uh, for that characters like balthazar jason newbury and others are perfectly placed completely agree uh, so we are getting close to time. So um, I've got a few minutes left. Uh, what uh, cool things do we need to talk about before we wrap up? Um, I think the Hunter Kickstarter will have just ended by the time this launched. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, I do. Uh, we should mention the GM's Day sale okay. uh, on DriveThruRPG right now. Um, if you just go to the front page of DriveThruRPG, there's a big banner, GM's Day. It's for the next, I think, like well, probably like 10 days by the time this comes out. Mm -hmm. Um, and so much stuff is on sale. You can get the PDF of Beckett's Jihad Diary for $10. Wow. Um, and it's not just us, it's other publishers, like tons of publishers that I think there's like 52,000 products in the sale. 
Um, but a lot of our stuff's on sale. So if there's any books you've been looking to pick up, um, also uh, V5 and Anarch and Camarilla are also part of the sale. So if you've wanted to pick those up, you can. Um, but a lot of our stuff, there's, there's Mage Books, there's Changeling the Lost, I think for like $8. Yeah. Like wow. CTL2E. Um, so you can get a lot of PDFs at deep discount right now. And I definitely recommend if you're interested in picking up any of those things, going to drive through RPG. Awesome. Um, Matthew, do you have any other news we need to relate? Do I have any news? That's an interesting question, Eddie. I should have considered my answer while Dixie was talking, but I was listening to her so attentively. So now I'm thinking while I'm talking, which, <laughs> as a, which as a man is actually quite a difficult thing to do, but I'm getting there. I think one of the most interesting things I have to announce right now or talk about is, and this will be of interest to some people, uh, that as of time of, uh, I guess, release, we should be in final drafts for They Came From Beyond the Grave. And that's Ooh. exciting because that's a game with zero meta plot <laughs> uh, and uh, you can do whatever you like with it uh, and I particularly want to uh, call out a draft that was submitted uh, for this book by uh, Joshua Allen Deach uh, one of our frequent go-to freelancers and uh, he submitted a scenario for this book which is strongly based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe and it's, uh, I think it's called The Red Mask of the Telltale Heart or something like this, a horrible <laughs> mashup. Uh, but it, it's, it reminded me a lot of you, Eddie, in the sense that I know you are completely familiar with so many branches of Sherlock fandom mm -hmm. and its multiverse. Uh, this is the ultimate Edgar Allan Poe scenario. It has oh, everything. Oh, my gosh. A, a bit of pretty much every single Edgar Allan Poe story appears in this, and I think it would be a blast to run uh, for anyone who is remotely familiar with Poe, and even for people who aren't. But uh, Having... you've got oh, sorry, yeah, uh, you know, you got pits, you got pendulums, you got ravens, you got hearts, you got headless people who made bets with the devil. Uh, you've got a guy called Montresor, and uh, it's yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Having done uh, a college semester on the works of Poe and having read everything Poe has ever written multiple times, including his humor pieces and literary critique, Ooh. I will be very interested to read this scenario and see how much he actually managed <laughs> to put in there. Um, because if he managed to get anything from any of his humor stuff in there, that's amazing because I love Poe's humor. And I'm really sad that more people don't know about it. Yeah. Like, if you ever want to read just the most scathing literary critiques you have ever read in your life, <laughs> go find some of the stuff that, that, that Poe published in various papers, because uh, he was just not happy. And also, one of my favorite Poe stories is How to Write a Blackwood Article, where he talks about how to write a bad tabloid article, essentially. <laughs> and it's a really good like story that nobody seems to have read. I mean, obviously people have read it, but everyone's familiar with his horror. Right. And I feel like not enough people are familiar with his humor pieces, his detective pieces. Like, he did all kinds of interesting yeah. stuff. Well, in that case, Dixie, I'm going to tell you now on this recorded session, get in touch with Joshua after you have a look. If there's not enough comedy in there, by all means, poke him. You have my <laughs> approval. Uh, I am sure he would be delighted uh, to, to put even more Poe references to the point that he has put comments on every single Poe reference, I think in the hope that we will put little ones and twos and threes at the <laughs> ends of various references, just so at the end we can have an index of Poe references. Um, 
but it could be kind of fun, actually. It, it could. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know if it's what we're going for, but it could. Uh, but yeah, do that. Uh, but yeah, that's my exciting news. Sweet. Um, uh, as for me, um, getting a lot of things kind of put together, but um, in particular, one thing that's been really fun is partially how fast it's been going. Um, is that on the aberrant side, um, we asked uh, Justin Achille to uh, redo his Duke Rolo uh, impression, um, doing gonzo journalism in the world of aberrants. Um, and it's been really entertaining uh, because uh, I, I, I was great for Ian and I to, to redline Justin and develop his project. Um, Dixie had a lot of fun editing it. Uh, yeah. Rich is trying to actually do the art himself for it. Um, emulating. What are you trying to? Well, I mean, I mean, he's trying to emulate. Rich, to, Rich could fail entirely. Well, he's, <laughs> he's seeking to emulate the original style, but also modernize it. So it's more not like he's, right. he, the art will happen, but it's more he's trying very specific style and approach and making sure right, right, right balance. So it, it, they I'm just teasing you. Well, also, Rich is a terrible artist. We know that. I mean, he's only been doing it for 30 years. <laughs> um, I think longer you'll find. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I don't want him to feel that old. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been it's been really interesting because we talk a lot about the big books. We talk a lot about uh, the big major projects. But every once in a while, it's really fun to kind of look at a, a small little project and see kind of how it just grabs people's attention. And I think it's been one of those, like, it's, it's not going to make a million dollars. It's not going to, you know, sell a, a ton of copies. But I think Aberrant fans will really enjoy it. I think it'll be a nice little... Uh, uh, teaser into some of the, the interesting corners of the world um and it's just a neat little project that uh, uh we can't always do so those are always i think really really fun totally and also on a personal note um uh sometime in the vague future uh i am actually going to start doing some private streaming um speaking of sherlock holmes video games because it's on my mind um i'm actually going to be streaming some sherlock holmes video games talking about sherlock holmes and uh game design as well um so i'm, I'm gonna I have actually uh, an old game from the 90s on the CD-ROM that I'm having shipped to me from eBay. I found it for like three bucks oh on eBay. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's uh, a piece of software that... Do you think it'll even run on your computer? Well, ScumVM, which is a, a virtual machine software, actually specifically could run this game. Oh, okay, okay. So I did some research into that. Um, so I was like, oh, actually, I can play this game. It's like almost 30 years old at this point. So that's going to be really, really fun. <laughs> Sorry, a quick interruption. This is uh, Eddie again. Uh, we forgot to mention this when we were recording, so I wanted to kind of jump back here and let you know that in a couple of weeks, we're going to do another installation of our uh, five-minute pitch session episodes. For those of you who don't remember, we did this about a year ago where we asked people online to task us about games that they had not know much about or were interested in but kind of wanted to know more about. And me, Matthew, and Dixie divided those games up amongst us, and we spent five minutes pitching why that game is really cool and awesome. So we're going to do that again. If you're interested in knowing about an Onyx Path game, uh, it can be a game that already is out, a game that's coming out very soon, or a game that we're still working on. And uh, we will get those together, and then in a couple of weeks, we'll spend five minutes telling you why that game is cool. So uh, tweet to us at Twitter, uh, drop a note in the Discord, drop a note on the comments on this blog post, uh, but otherwise just tell us what kind of games you're interested in. All right, cool. Back to the episode. Um, uh, but yeah, so if people wanted to talk to uh, any of you about uh, Metaplot and how to use it, or just want to talk about cool fan properties, where do they find you, Dixie? You can find me at DixieCochran.com or DixieCyanide on most social media. And Matthew? They can find me at MatthewDawkins.com. They can find me on Twitter as ClackClickBang. 
And you can find me at uh, pugsteady.com. You can find me on Twitter at pugsteady, P-U-G-S-T-E-D-D-Y. Um, you can also find all of us at uh, theonyxpath.com. You can find our blog there. Um, you can you know, chat with the, the company on uh, Twitter, on Facebook. We have a lot of Facebook groups. Um, we also have a Discord. Uh, we have our ongoing, it seems like tons of content going on, on our Twitch channel right now. Um, including, you know, tons and tons of games. Uh, we have actually two different Hunter the Vigil games running right now. Um, so if for some reason you missed out on the Kickstarter, definitely start watching those videos, get a sense of it, and get ready for when the backer kit opens up. Um, I think you'd be very pleased at how Second Edition is turning out. But uh, definitely keep us in mind, keep in touch with us, ask us questions if you have them, and as always, many worlds, one pathcast. Cast.